What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary. So milliner and millinery are perhaps not jobs and job titles that we are familiar with in today's day and age. I mean, the profession is not quite as popular as it may have been in, say, the pre-1960s era when leaving your house during the day without a hat would have just been unthinkable. I mean, it was so inextricably linked to one's social standing and respectability. But if anyone is going to remind us today about the effectiveness, the joy, and the sheer artistry of a well-placed hat, it is today's guest who has said, quote, a hat makes clothing identifiable, dramatic, and most importantly, fashion. It's the cherry on the cake, the dot on the eye, the exclamation mark, the fashion focus. Everyone from showgirls to dictators know that by wearing a hat, they will be the center of attention. We are so pleased to welcome Master Milliner Stephen Jones to the show today. Stephen is inarguably one of the most influential, prolific, and celebrated milliners of the late 20th and 21st centuries. In 2010, in gratitude for his artistic contributions, he was awarded the distinction of OBE, becoming an officer of the Order of the British Empire, and with good reason, because since opening his first millinery salon in 1980, Stephen's highly prized creations have been adored and admired the world over, adorning the heads of everyone from royalty to rock stars, from Diana, Princess of Wales, to Mick Jagger, to Lady Gaga, and Rihanna. Yeah, and like his star clientele, his designs really run the gamut, ranging from recognizable but no less sophisticated standards like fedoras, berets, and top hats 
to, you know, things like oversized painter palettes, giant daisy confections, and pipe cleaner hats inspired by Andy Warhol's brushstrokes. Some of Stephen's descriptions of his own hats include fairy light halos, blitz kid helmets, and seahorse crowns, which is just so whimsical and wonderful. And in Stephen's hands, hats are raised to the highest level of art and sophistication. Hats become a poem, a fantastical dreamscape, or a sophisticated finishing touch. Stephen is a fashion history maker off and on the runway, where he has worked with designers from Vivian Westwood to Ray Kawakubo of Come de Garçon to the rotating cast of designers who have helmed Dior since the 90s when Jones began his tenure as the creative director of Hats, a position which he still holds to this day. By far, his most famous designer collaborations are with John Galliano. And during Galliano's 15 years at Dior, the two created some of the most famous hat moments in fashion history. And it should be abundantly clear by now that Stephen is one very busy man, the man of many hats, have you? And we are so grateful to him for taking the time to talk to us today about his incredible four-decade-plus-long career, creating some of the most whimsical, playful, elegant, and beloved hats in the history of fashion. Stephen, welcome to Dressed. Stephen, welcome to Dressed. This is such an honor and a pleasure to have you here with me today. I'm delighted to be here, Cassidy. Such a huge fan and admirer of your work, as are all of our listeners, I am sure. And I would love if we could just start by talking about maybe your formative relationship with fashion and the fashion self. Do you have an earliest memory of fashion or the transformative power of dress that you can share with us? Certainly, there are a couple of things. There was something, I was really into appearance more than fashion. I remember being taken around museums and art galleries by my mum when I was very young and my mum showing me, you know, arrangement of pictures and why certain things were in certain places and what people were wearing and what the messages were. And for example, things like in a, with a suit of armour, men wore a plume in their helmet, which was given to them to the, by their lady just before they went into jousting, for example, to show what team they were in or who they were fighting for, who they were representing. So that was one thing. I mean, that was from a very, very early age. And the other thing, which was, and then, you know, I just wore normal kids' clothes. Um, and then a really transformative time and like the power of fashion was in 1972 when the first Roxy Music album came out and it was Roxy Music and David Bowie. And, you know, I saw, oh my God, all the different ways that you could appear. I mean, I knew that I wore school uniform and right. what that represented. <laughs> much to the amusement of because I was at a private school and we wore like boaters in the summer, for example, and we wore school uniform and the other local boys who were not that, you know, always used to scream with laughter and shout rude things at us, of course, because we looked completely ridiculous <laughs> um, or very dressed up. So those were my sort of earliest things of fashion. And, you know, I had a a sister who was 10 years older than me and I was at a, a very uh, Church of England, a very Anglican school, and she used to come, and this was in the 70s, and she wore light, 
lilac suede hot pants and you can imagine wow. I, was, I was so popular <laughs> at school and when she stopped coming and then my popularity went down. <laughs> I, I think I read in an interview with you, you talked about how you were convinced that she was dating Mick Jagger because she lived in London and you would, had just imagined this fabulous life that she was living. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, basically I thought she was Jerry Hall reincarnate um, <laughs> or, or, or Bianca at that time. But I mean, it was a whole world that I found fascinating, but really didn't know that much about. I also read you have a wonderful monograph of your work called Stephen Jones Souvenirs. And I read in there and there's some wonderful pictures in there. Um, It's really an insightful and intimate uh, monograph of your work. But there's also this wonderful image of the clothing you made for the family pet. Uh, He's kind of dressed in this nurse's outfit, which is wonderful. So it sounds like you were experimenting at least with creating garments at an early age? I mean, sort of having fun with clothing. And, you know, everything was from a charity shop. Everything was, you know, recycled dishcloths, etc., <laughs> etc. Et Nothing was bought new. So I, did, I think fashion per se, I mean, I was aware of fashion, but it was just all the messages that people sent out to each other by what they were wearing. And from a very early age, I was really aware of that. You know, my father wore a suit. He wore different clothes to play golf. Why was he wearing those clothes? It's all a costume. Yeah. And then, of course, you said the school uniform, of course, the message that's sending out versus what you would have worn, you know, to your, your Sunday's best or to play with your friends. It's all different. Yeah. Actually, funny enough, at school, we used to call, I mean, it was normal clothes. And the, then we called them civvies, which meant civilian right. clothing. Josie, <laughs> <laughs> where I was coming from anyway. So your path to millinery was not necessarily linear, nor was it obvious to you initially. Um, How did you find your way to the art of hat making? Can you share a little bit with us about that journey? Yeah, I mean, I didn't have a clue what I was going to do. I wasn't like Isaac Mizrahi, you know, making clothes for mummy age four or Gautier or any of those people. No, I mean, I really didn't know what I was going to do. I knew I didn't fit in to my parents' life or into that world that I knew, or the world of my elder sisters. But what I was going to do was all a complete mystery. And I mean, I was going to do architecture, first of all. And in England, you have to do a thing called foundation course, which is a before you go to art school, you do a little, like two-week block of ceramics and interior design and textiles and all these different things. And I decided to go and do fashion. Um, also, because I was aware that, that St. Martin's School of Art was the closest art college to central London, central London Piccadilly Circus. And in those days, they only did four courses, which were painting, sculpture, graphics, and fashion. And I knew that even though I was good at art, at art, I didn't think that I wanted to be a struggling artist in a garret trying to make ends meet. And even though I was quite good at graphics and still love graphics and typography in particular today, in graphic designer's work was always so incredibly neat. And really, I was much more expressive and that left fashion. So, you know, which which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Anyway, amazingly enough, I got into St. Martin's. I think I was the token male. And there were all these girls who could sew brilliantly. Um, I had no idea whatsoever. So my tailoring tutor took pity on me and said, you know, Stephen, unless you get some extra help, you're going to fail the first year. So he 
actually was teaching there just as a favor because he owned a couture house called La Chasse in London. And I went there as a tailoring intern. At that time, I did not know of anybody else who was an intern. At that time in England, internships didn't exist, work experience, anything like that. Nobody did that. I was the only person I knew who did that. Um, so I went to work in his tailoring workroom during um, the holidays. And it was quite interesting, but I don't know. I, I sort of knew I was going to make it as a tailor. And it also was very competitive between, funnily enough, between the Greek tailoring workroom and the Jewish tailoring workroom. Of course. I mean, they all got on perfectly well outside work. All their wives are friendly with each other and would bring cakes and homemade things. But in work, oh my God, it was like a football final or something. And even age 19, I thought this was a bit stupid. But next to the tailoring workroom was a millinery workroom. And the milliners worked hard and they played hard. They talked to each other. They seemed to have a good time. And I was I was fascinated by those things that they had on the table as well. These things, hats, they just seemed such anachronism. I mean, my my mum wore hats, my grandma wore hats. You know, I knew people wearing hats, but I don't know, none of none of my friends, none of my friends from college would ever dream of hats or going into hats or something like that. It was a complete anachronism. So I transferred from one department to another. And after the first day in the millinery workroom, I thought, wow, this is incredible. I loved it. I mean, I didn't know I was going to make a career out of it. I was still doing women's fashion. You know, I was doing women's wear ready to wear. So when I left, my final exams were in clothing, not fashion. I think that's why nowadays I still love work. I love working with clothing designers because for me, the hat is just part of it. Well, is part of the outfit. I always imagined a total look. I mean, the total look might be a plain black dress to go with a fancy hat, but I always imagine, and mentally, when I draw, I always draw the backbone first, and then I draw the head, and then I put a hat on it. I never draw the hat in isolation. Absolutely wonderful. And I love, too, that you talked about how you realized that just as much handwork went into millinery as into, like, finished couture garments, something I don't think a lot of people consider. No, no. I mean, the, th the main thing is that a hat is such a three-dimensional object, you could never really fit it under a sewing machine. I mean, there's certain techniques you can use, but it's, you know, it, it's all in the air. It's all by hand. There are some machine parts of it, but it's such a 3D object that no machine can contain that. Having said that, you know, people do print hats using 3D. I did this season for Dior Man. We'd, we made some hats in 3D printing. But the ability to see something, for example, a sketch on a page and know immediately what it would look like in 3D. And somehow, genetically, I was able to do that. <laughs> I mean, you have had this incredible career where you, it seems, have a never-ending source of inspiration for hats and headwear. But first, I want to talk about how you got started, because you opened your first millinery salon in 1980. You were just, I think, 20 years old. And you quickly, and what it looks like to me, just looking at all the media attention you got, you had an incredible success. I think something like 500 people alone came to your opening of your tiny little boutique. By 19. 
81, Suzanne Barch was importing your hats to New York. By 84, they were on the Paris runway. And then you have all of these fashion spreads that are just lauding your work and basically saying that you are the future of millinery. And what I love too is that you're like the literal face of modern millinery because your image accompanies almost every single fashion spread that I found of your work, which I just loved. At that time, did you comprehend how radical your work was? You mentioned your friends didn't wear hats. Um, so was this something completely new? But by, by then they were starting to. And this was really from 1980. And I was making hats for my friends. Um, Sometimes if they were friends who were just starting up pop bands, they'd become musicians, they were buying them for me. But then I was making some for my really good friends and giving them to them and they were wearing them out. And, you know, we we would do exchanges, you know, I would give a hat and they would give me three sheep. No, not exactly, (laughs) close to it. Or they would make me dinner for a week or something. You know, it it worked very well. But there was no great plan, no great plan. And we were living from day to day. And and in a way, the reason that there was so much media um, was that we, that was at the time that we were creating our own media. It's a little bit, Maybe like now, the established media just seemed from another generation, another place. So we were just doing our own thing. So there were magazines like The Face and ID and Blitz magazine as well. And they are the people that featured our work. I mean, I, I remember taking hats into established magazines and them saying, well, you know, you're too new unless you have five points of sale in the UK, we can't feature you. I mean, it's sort of unbelievable now that not to me, but to anybody at all, (laughs) people are always looking for the newest, brightest thing. But people didn't think like that then. People thought it was what they used to call it was street fashion. And I was in this weird position because I was halfway between street fashion, but with couture techniques. And I I love being in the in-between. And always have been, always have been. I not to say I didn't want to be typecast or labeled or anything, but I love that the sort of the floating world of millinery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're kind of creating it, I think, as you went along too. It kind of seems like you're creating a new world that people could explore and enjoy. And I read this article in the New York Times from 1981. And, you know, the the journalist is heralding you as, as like the newest, greatest thing. He calls you a cult figure in London. And Suzanne Barch had been importing your hats into her boutique. And I just wanted to read for our listeners just... Um, kind of this wonderful uh, variety of whimsical and experimental hats that you were already creating in 81. So you had six foot long embroidered muslin funnel caps that fit snugly over the forehead, then wrap around the shoulders as shawls, Picasso inspired felt pork pies shaped like palettes and hats made of white vinyl that curl over and through one's hair. So clearly already early on, you're inspired by fashion and art history in your work. Can you talk a little bit about what has inspired your creations throughout your career? And it's so funny. You know, the first hat you just talked about then, which was this long funnel. Just before I came onto this call, I was fitting. I've decided to redo that hat and I'm remaking it next summer 23. Wonderful. It's not exactly the same, but it's following the same principle. So, you know, what comes around comes around. And I've had, you know, 42 years of trading professionally. So where does inspiration come from? Everywhere, every second of the day. 
you know, I live my life and think about it in sometimes in hat terms and and put pencil in my hand and out pops a sketch. Having said that, there are certain things, of course. There's you know, buildings, architecture, which are basically hats to me, hats that you live in. Um, there's film, which is about representation and, you know, fakery and the the wonder the wonders of illusion. So those are very, very strong. But you know, every season I pick a theme. And sometimes I work really long and hard on that theme, what that theme's going to be. And sometimes it's just a complete whim, which makes more sense. I don't know. The whim may be rather than the analysis. Uh, and in the same way, you know, I can sketch and we can prep a hat for weeks and weeks and weeks. But sometimes something which is spontaneous and just comes out of something out of a made out of something at the back of the cover that we don't have the reference number for, doesn't come in colorways, and I pin it up on somebody's head, and that's the best hat in the collection. I don't know. There's, In a way, there's no logic to it, and I think when there is a logic to it, that's when it becomes a bit dull or something. And that's how you've been able to create collections. You've been creating two collections a year since 1982, so 40 years of creating two collections of years in which you're constantly finding inspiration I love when you talk, I've heard you talk a couple different times or read interviews with you where you talk about the autobiographical aspect of your hat making. And to quote you, you said, I take everything life has thrown at me and make a hat out of it. For instance, you used a telegram that your father sent your mother from Africa when he found out she was pregnant. And that was inspiration for your 2016 collection, which I thought was quite beautiful. Yes, it, it, they are autobiographical. For example, next spring's collection was about a place I visited, a place I fell in love with, some people I fell in love with, you know, th there's that. And also sometimes, yeah, I mean, it, it's art as well, but, you know, art can be found in a meal, in a drink, as well as in a painting or a sculpture. And so often art is found in that person, in that particular person, you know, the, the, the beauty of the person, the craziness of the person, the character of the person. Um, so, I mean, I, I always hope that I can be inspired by everything because to shut yourself down or to put up barriers, um, I don't think that's what life's about. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you define a hat? Because I actually think it might surprise our listeners. I heard this wonderful interview with you and Susie Menkez where you talked about how like a hat could be just a, a flower put behind the ear. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Totally. I mean, a hat can be anything that you can put on your head. I mean, okay, you're wearing a turban or, or a head wrap and some headphones. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's a hat. I'm wearing a very classic straw hat. Um, with a tie-dyed band on it. And I know that when I wear this, I look like an overgrown Boy Scout. But a hat really can be anything at all. And that's the wonderful thing of it. You know, there has to be, for it to look convincing, there has to be a certain beauty about it. I mean, not my hat, but for example, the Scaparelli shoe hat is a fantastic hat, which happens to look like a shoe. And it has to be that way around. But you know, I'm picking something up. No, you know, it could be a pair of scissors. That's right. too 
um, you know, it could be anything at all. And sometimes for me, the yeah, spon- something which is spontaneous look, can look wonderful. But obviously hat making is sometimes very long and laborious and there's many different techniques and there's a real pathway. I mean, people would not not believe the amount of time and complexity it is to make a hat. But yeah, hats can hats can be anything. But maybe the most important thing is I know it sounds really stupid, but hats have sort of got to make you dream. Not of reality, but of like the fantasy that you want to have. Maybe you feel a mess and just want to look neat. Maybe you're a regular mom and want to be a princess. Maybe you're a guy, regular guy, and you want to be a hot stud, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I say that in the third person, by the way. Um, And, but, you know, and hats have got that ability. And somehow, because it's a hat, it can look convincing. Because if you put the, that information to clothing, it looks like costume. Whereas in a hat, it just looks more throwaway somehow, maybe because you can just take it off your head very easily as opposed to uh, undressing or redressing or whatever. Um, so I'm actually really glad you said that because that is something that is so incredible about your work is that it does make you dream. You do you do have like more recognizable fashion classics that you reimagine. You have like, you know, berets that you call you've called the t-shirt of hats, which I love. You know, there's cloches and bucket hats in your lines. Um, but then you have these incredible, fantastical dreamscapes that just defy classification and can be enjoyed as you would enjoy any work of art just by looking at them. And I can imagine when you actually put them on your head and wear them, the transformative power of what you do. It's quite poetic and magical in so many wonderful ways. I'd love if we could talk just a little bit more about the influence of fashion history, maybe in your work a little bit. Um, for instance, you've you've had this incredible run at Dior. You've been working with the House of Dior since 1996, which is remarkable. In 2003, your work with John Galliano at Dior, there's this wonderful hat, and you describe it as an exclamation mark of Lily of the Valley, Monsieur Dior's favorite flower, but brought up to date and lacquer red. You've also done a collection um, based on Simonetta, which is incredibly beautiful. Can you just talk a little bit more about your appreciation of fashion history and how it informs your work, if at all? Well, you cannot be a milliner without recognizing fashion history because so many beautiful hats have been made before in so many beautiful hats. Of course, every milliner working today wants to make something of their own and something new. But I mean, when I look back, I see these marvelous things made out of extraordinary materials. I mean, actually what we wear today, nowadays, in 2022, is so incredibly classic. People used to wear crazy things. (laughs) Oh my God. I mean, women and men. I mean, very, very extravagant. And and hats which were extraordinary shapes. I mean, fashion which is extraordinary shapes. Of course, the reason that they wore them was so often about power and money. You know, the the symbol of royalty is a crown. It's not a shoe. Um, And that's, you know, a royal hat, the ultimate royal hat. But really... I mean, history, I remember talking about history and millinery. I remember when I was at college going into the library there and 
the, the really in those days weren't very many fashion books. I mean, literally in the quite large library, fashion books was maybe a yard of books on the shelf, and that was no. it. That was it. That's all that existed. They didn't really exist. And underneath that, there was a cardboard box with some dusty old Vogue and Harper's Bazaar magazines from the 30s, 40s, and 50s that some benefactor had given the college. Nobody ever looked at them. And I remember flicking through them and seeing all these extraordinary photographs by Richard Avedon, Irving Penn, you know, all, all the greatest photographers. And so often they were aware of hats. And so that was an extraordinary inspiration. But yeah, I mean, I mean, the weirdest thing is for me, I've been doing it so long now that I sort of made my own history. So it's like, oh, absolutely. That, that old, that old thing. <laughs> yeah, I loved um, one of your collections. I think it was 2017. You'd imagine collaborating with some of, you know, the great oak couturiers of history. So you had like hats inspired by Adrian and Charles James and Scaparelli, Madame Gray, which were absolutely wonderful. I love that collection. I love the fact that you really looked into that. There were all the designers who I never worked with. That collection was all about, uh, and about the greats of fashion design and American designers like Adrian, like when, when Adrian had left MGM and he was doing his haute couture collection out of his salon and he died at quite a young age, but what hats he would like. And I'd actually been to the Adrian and Mr. John archive, which is in LACMA, and I'd photographed some of the drawings there, which were extraordinary, and used that as inspiration. I didn't literally copy them, but they were very strongly inspired by it, but, you know, done completely out, out of respect. Similarly for American designers, Charles James, I remember when I was on this thing on called Foundation Course, before I came to London, I went to an exhibition at the Victorian Albert Museum in London, which was called Fashion 1900 to 1939, which was actually one of the very first fashion exhibitions in the world. There wasn't fashion, fashion exhibitions no. in the museum. <laughs> um, and there was the very famous Charles James jacket in that, which is a white padded satin, which had been famously, it was Charles James, but had been worn by Pat Cleveland in a photograph, had been uh, illustrated by Antonio, and there it was in this cabinet. And I actually had the huge privilege a few years ago to be go backstage at the VNA and really examine that jacket. It's wonderful. I made a, a, a padded cap reminiscent of that padded jacket. Well, I'd love to say reminiscent of it. It, it, it was <laughs> great, actually, I have to say. Oh, you did a beautiful homage. Absolutely. And our dress listeners are actually quite familiar with that jacket because we've talked about it so many times on the show. It's one of the greatest pieces in fashion history because it looks what would be a puffer coat of, you know, to our contemporary eyes. It was made in like 1939, I think, or 1937, which is just remarkable. It's so exquisite. And actually, if you see the puffer jackets that people make nowadays, it's like, why don't you take inspiration from the Charles right. James? It's extraordinary. <laughs> There's actually a beautiful way to do this in an artistic way that can make it fashion. Yeah, absolutely. 
podcast. As you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. So we've talked about that collection and being inspired by designers you did not have the privilege of working with, but you've, in your incredible career, you've worked with and a wonderful array of designers from Zandra Rhodes and Vivian Westwood, Ray Kawakubo of Comte des Garçons, Thierry Mugler, Jean-Paul Gaudia. I mean, it, the list goes on. Can you t- maybe just talk to us about um, some of the designer collaborations and maybe highlighting a few of your favorites or the most memorable? I'm sure that's hard. <laughs> yeah, it is hard. But, you know, there's a certain, I mean, for example, Zandra was the first person that I ever worked with. And 
we were introduced by mutual friends and I worked with her for a few shows. But then the next sort of big break really was, it's funny how these things happen and you can never plan it. Um, you have to be a bit of a yes person. But anyway, I appeared in the Culture Club video of Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? And Boy George was a friend of mine. He asked if I could be in it. And I was there in this sort of what, what looked like a cafe. I'm sitting down, talking to this girl. And I had a three-piece suit on a zoot suit and uh, a fez. And Jean-Paul Gaultier saw that invited me to model in his collection. I couldn't actually do that. But then I started to work with him. And that was that really my entree into Paris was when so working with Jean Paul was extraordinary. I, I mean, I don't work with him and I haven't worked with him for a long time, but very occasionally we do collaborate again. And it's great to see him and, and he's a friend. Um, and every designer who I worked with, I mean, very rarely do people just phone up and say, I'd like to have a hat. It's always through some sort of introduction somehow. I mean, that's how I started to work at Dior in 96. I mean, I, well, actually before that, because I was working with John Galliano and I'd met him because my first assistant became his first assistant. And, you know, it's even though fashion is this huge business that everybody does slightly know each other or knows somebody who knows somebody and there's always these connections it, it's like museum world or costume world it's it's very small and the great thing about now and the internet and everything is we do really communicate with each other all the time all the time and um i love if we could talk a little bit more about your relationship with john galliano at dior because hands down some of the most whimsical and creative expressions of hats that you've made are when you collaborated with John, I would argue that your part and parcel of the success of his tenure there is the incredible creations that you um, created. And I think he would actually agree with that because it seemed like the sky was quite literally the limit in what you did. Can you talk a little bit more about that and maybe the storytelling capabilities of your hats? Because I think that was so much a part of that collaboration as well. So I just said before, I mean, I'd, I'd known John when he was just about to leave college. It's a, in the Colin McDowell book, it says that he'd asked me to make hats and I'd said for him, for his final collection or his one of his first collection collections, I'd, I'd said to him, no, I can't actually remember that. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, one day I had a phone call um, from Stephen, his main assistant, and I'd introduced Stephen to John who said, John would love to work with you. You'd never done it yet. You know each other. You've known each other quite a long time. And this was in 92, 93. And John had just started to work in Paris. And we started to work together. And I remember there was an extraordinary show, which is a very famous show in the world of fashion, which, which was at the um, house of Sao Schlumberger. John showed... I think it was 18 outfits, all in black, apart from one, which was in pink. And I remember I, I'd made hats for the show and John and I were pinning Kate Moss into her little Obi sash. And we were just working on it together. We were just pinning together in this sash and he was holding the fabric and I was pinning and I was holding the fabric and he was pinning. And we just did this thing. It was like one set of hands. Um, I remember. When we did it and she walked out and she looked absolutely exquisite, 
we just looked at each other and smiled. And I just knew we understood each other. It was so funny. Um, com communicating through fashion, not by words. That was also a very interesting thing. And I think that's what John did really when he was at Dior. He told that the story he told so often was through the hats. And he would brief me before the collections quite a few months, sometimes only a few days, but normally a few months before. The <laughs> and he would say, you know, there's a Chinese princess and she runs away to Egypt and there she meets an Irish tinker and they go on a cruise down the Nile and she becomes friends with a zebra and she paints her coat to look like the fabulous zebra stripes, but it's got a Chinese twist to it. You know, and so I, he would, he would say, tell me all these wonderful stories. And I would put that story and make a hat out of it. And often the hats and the shoes and the makeup would become before the dresses, but he was thinking the dresses were in his head. He designed that, but things became reality often sooner in the hats than in the clothing. But we, just sort of complimented each other. I mean, he had a great team and it was a, a wonderful creative time at Dior that lasted 15 years. You know, what also what's so extraordinary about that time is now when a designer goes to a, a couture house or a, a big house, they think, well, keep everything to, you know, they're going to stay there three years, five years, seven years. When we went to Dior, we thought we were going there forever. Of course, it didn't work out that way for reasons we all know, but we went in to it that way that we thought that we were Dior and Dior was us. We didn't separate ourselves from it. And also, I think what was extremely unusual about John at Dior was so many other designers, when they go to a house, you know, they're fantastic designers. They learn that design brief. But John had always been influenced by Dior. If you look at his work in London, it's always, or his early work in Paris, it's so often interpretations of Dior and Monsieur Dior's look. And John was fascinated by Monsieur Dior ever since I knew him, because Monsieur Dior had created that whole world and that whole language in 10 years. I mean, and the ironic thing was that, of course, after 10 years, Monsieur Dior died. It, the pressure was too great. Yeah. It killed him. And, um, you know, John, you know, had all the troubles and went through all the things that he did do. Um, I mean, now he's much better. And I, in fact, this season for Margiela, I was delighted to work with him again, which was the first time really since his first collection at Margiela, I, I made one hat for him, Margiela. But I'm very proud of the work that I did with John for Dior. And John's very proud of the work he did then and is very happy for it to be shown in the Met and in other museums around the world to appreciate the wonderful things that did together. But it is the past for us as well. Yeah. You're both inarguably part of that DNA now of the house and the legacy and history of Dior. I think you had something like 150 pieces in the recent Dior exhibition, for instance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it actually is funny. For example, in Brooklyn, I mean, obviously there's Monsieur Dior, then Yves Saint Laurent, then Marc Bohm, Monsieur Ferre, 
John, Raf, Maria, Grazia, but actually um, I have more work in there than anybody. <laughs> exactly. I said not the egocentrically. But it, it it is funny when I count up and I see, and I, I mean, I've been there a long time. Um, but also the great thing is, you know, Dior is the only haute couture house which has got its own millinery workroom. And Monsieur Arno absolutely believes in supporting it and believes in the beauty of, of Dior. And the funny thing is, if you're somebody from anywhere on the planet and you think about French fashion, it's probably got a big skirt on it and it's wearing a hat. And it's wearing a Dior hat. <laughs> Absolutely. One of the most, yeah, unforgettable moments in fashion history are the 10 years that Dior was in charge of his own house. And then second to that, I would say the reign of John Galliano at Dior yeah. Um, yeah. from the 90s into the 2000s. So I know that your time is limited with us today. So I'd, in closing, I just wanted to ask you about the significance of hats, because I think as with any element of fashion, people can, you know, in general, reduce hats to mere aesthetics or functionality. Um, but as we know, there's so much more than that. So in your opinion, in closing, why are hats such an important part of what we wear, have worn, and will continue to wear into the future? Well, number one, they're so visible. Because if you see somebody from 100 yards away, you know, if they've got a hat on, that will be immediately obvious. You might check out the rest of their silhouette, but the fact that they're wearing a hat is sort of unusual. And I'm sure people will look back in 500 years time and think, oh, it was really weird at the end of the 20th and beginning of the 21st century, people didn't wear hats every day. That's so strange because it's the only time in history that people have not worn hats. I mean, of course, there's certain things like getting into a car and heating and you know, all, uh, all of that. But um, you know, hats are the most important accessory because they're the most visible. And they're a symbol of ourselves, of who we want to be. And they're like a passport to another world. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for being with us today. This was an absolutely wonderful conversation. My pleasure. And lovely to see you. Very pleased you got a hat on. I'm going to put mine yes. back on. <laughs> Guys don't normally wear hats inside. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm very old fashioned like that. So I always take off my hat, even when I come into my workroom here. <laughs> Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, thank you, Stephen, so much. And thank you, of course, to his wonderful assistant, Annika, for making this all a reality. Dress listeners, for more on Stephen's work, check out his website, stephenjonesmillinery.com. And of course, his wonderful Instagram by the same name, at stephenjonesmillinery, for a daily dose of his work. And that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider adding a hat as the exclamation mark on your outfit next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episode. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. Dress History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.